The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in Let's downtown with Fredericksburg, Virginia. And then we'll, uh, we'll study together about your word. Father, thank you for this gathering of the saints here at Foundation. We pray that for the next 45 minutes we'd be able to diligently study and examine and consider your word, the beauty of the gospel and the incarnation of Christ. Uh, Father, the mystery of what it means that God would become man, that Christ is the Son of God, that he would be born of a virgin, that he, you, would stoop so low as to identify with your creation, that you would take on flesh, that you'd become one of us, that you would become a servant obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we pray that the considerations this morning and the study of your word would lead us to a greater joy, would stir our affection and our celebration this Advent season. We'd recognize, God, that as much of the merriment and joy around the season of gathering and seeing friends and families and loved ones would be rooted more deeply in the truth that God became man. And uh, so we simply want to be moved by that truth this morning, reminded of that truth, and believe that truth. We ask this as always in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, the Gospel of Luke, as we've studied over the last several weeks, is written by Luke to be a historically accurate account of the events that happened around the birth and life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. His aim is to record these events, pass them on to his sponsor, Theopolis, but also for posterity, so that the truth of these things, the claims of Christianity, would be well documented from the earliest. So, the often cited and read passages here around Christmas in Luke chapters 1 and 2 and the other Gospels as well are really historical accounts. They're not myths or legends or fairy tales we tell ourselves to remind ourselves that Christmas should be a time of joy and thanksgiving. They are a record of true events. Certainly events that go beyond our full understanding go beyond and reach beyond our ability to fully understand, reconcile, and make sense of, for instance, the mystery of the Incarnation. And so even when we read in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospels themselves about Jesus, His birth and His life and His death and what He's accomplished, and then we read in the rest of the New Testament what the Spirit is intending to do in building His church, we are often faced with a sense of wonder and amazement to try to reconcile these true things, these true statements of what the Bible says with how we're to live in a world full of empirical realities, the things we can touch and see and feel, the things we can sense with our faculties. But it stretches the imagination, it stretches the intellect to understand what it means that God takes on flesh. This is what Luke wants to understand. In order for God to impress upon the people of Jesus' day that this was really happening, he accompanied that coming of Jesus with signs. Before the birth of Jesus, we saw that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, they would conceive miraculously a son, even though they were old age and barren, much like Abraham and Sarah were. They would conceive and she would bear a son, John who would come and proclaim that the Christ had arisen. Here in our story, we see Mary, welcomed by the angel Gabriel and told that she also miraculously would bear a son and that his name would be Jesus. And in our passage today, we read of the angels and the shepherds just after the birth of Jesus outside of Bethlehem. And angels appear and sing and declare and praise and announce the birth of Jesus. There's been many famous announcements in world history. 
So many that often even the most famous and pivotal moments of history are often lost to our memories, written down in some obscure history book, and we only come to find them when we're specifically looking for them, perhaps for an assignment at school, or we're curious about why a certain thing has happened or why a certain thing is. But announcements about important historical events can sometimes be overstated, can't they? Sometimes looking back, we see all the fanfare of an announcement and all the pomp and circumstances that center around the birth of a son or the election of a new prime minister or president can kind of be overinflated. And history comes and goes, and they're relegated to the past in the history books for us to study, and they're a question on an exam for our future children. Some announcements also are understated. Sometimes we're simply not told or announced that there has been a new shift in history, and we find out maybe ages later that this has happened. But we're considering this morning the announcement of the birth of Jesus. The last two weeks in the Gospel of Luke, we have worked our way to the birth of Jesus in Elizabeth's story and in Mary's story. But what we haven't seen is how Mary and Joseph wandered to Bethlehem, to go to the town of David where Joseph is from so that he would be counted in the census. And there in the manger, Mary would give birth to Jesus. And so we read then that the very first act of God after the birth of Jesus is to announce to these shepherds that his son has been born. And the praise and the song which follows is what we study this morning. So I want to point your attention to Luke chapter 2. And we'll, for context, begin in verse 1, though this morning we're studying verses 8 through 20. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the Caesar wanted to have a census done. And in order to do this, everyone had to go back to the town where he was from. And if you were a wife, you had to go back to the town where your husband was from and be counted or registered there. So Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. That's where he was from, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, outside of Bethlehem, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I wonder if you were tasked with planning the announcement of the birth of Jesus, the Son of God, how would you have done it? If you were an angel in heaven, God approached you, 
suspend your sort of theological disbelief for a moment and said, your job is to go and announce to the world that Jesus has been born. My son has taken on flesh. And just as I said he would, he is born there in Bethlehem. Go, tell the world. How might you plan the announcement of the birth of Jesus? Better yet, how would you have planned the very birth of Jesus itself? If God said, here's the plan to redeem the world, my son's going to come and take on flesh and he's going to die for the sins of the world. Uh, can you plan that, all the details? Thank you. I'm a big picture guy. I'm busy. Can you, de- can you fill out the details? How would you have planned the incarnation? Well, if you're like me, you might have begun drawing up the biggest, most intimate plans you can think of. Certainly, we need angels. Certainly, we need fanfare. Certainly, we need robes. Certainly, we need floating chariots. Certainly, we need a throne. Certainly, we need music. Certainly, we need bright light. Certainly, we need a bunch of things that's going to make it very obvious that God has just done something very, very, very special, and everyone should take notice. But that's not what happened. Thankfully, God did not task With this detail to the angels, he himself undertook the work that he had planned to do. And this was so mundane and so ordinary that hardly anyone took notice that the birth of the Son of God had taken place. Even the announcement came to shepherds. Once a respected trade and job, King David himself was a shepherd. But by this time, was considered a pretty lowly and meager occupation. But the first of those who would receive the announcement of Jesus' birth were lowly shepherds. And curiously, the birth itself was not in some palace, but in a stable. Probably an open room where the animals were brought in because, because of the census, there was no room for anywhere else. And the baby, the Son of God, the Lord, the creator of the universe, was lying in a feeding trough. This is not how either of us would have planned the incarnation or the announcement of the birth of Jesus, and yet this is what God has done. And the work that takes place because of this is worthy of our consideration. There's a hint here how God operates in the world. There's a hint here for us to understand what God is telling us and communicating about the nature of the birth of Jesus and about the announcement of the birth of Jesus that becomes like a paradigm for the rest of Jesus' life. That his life would be not marked by fanfare. There's no one rolling out the red carpet for Jesus. The only kind of royal treatment Jesus gets in this life is when he is mocked on his way to the cross and a crown of thorns is placed on his head and a scarlet robe is placed around his body. So the angels, one angel initially appears to some shepherds who are out watching their flock by night probably early spring as the lambs are beginning to be born and they're watching over their flocks. And suddenly there is an angel that appears to them and this angel announces to them that great news. He literally in the Greek evangelizes them. Great news, good news of great joy. Jesus is born. Here's where you can find him. Here's how you'll know it's him. And you should go and see him. And so they do. And they're struck by the awe and amazement of this scene that God clearly has done something unique, but not in the way they would have expected. This announcement of the angels and even the story of the shepherds, I think can be paraphrased or summarized rather simply. The angels essentially say, He is here. Peace has come. Praise the Lord. It's a simple message, and it's a simple announcement, isn't it? Not, listen all you theology students, God has become man, we're going to call it the hypostatic union. It's a mystery, but I'll do my best to explain it in volumes. No. Jesus is here. Great news has arrived. Peace has come with the arrival of his son, 
Praise the Lord, the angels would declare and sing. It's a simple but profound message. He is here. Peace has come. Praise the Lord. Where do you take each of those summary statements of the message of the angels and the story of the shepherds and consider the story as it's unfolded here in the Gospel of Luke? It says in verse 11, the angels declared, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Or your translation may say, Today in the city of David is born to you one who is Christ the Lord. This phrase for today in the Greek occurs in Luke's gospel 11 times. And in Acts, the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, it's recorded nine times. Now, it's a simple enough word today. It means like this very day. But in this context, Luke changes the implication of the meaning. So in the passage here in verse 11 and a few others, Luke uses it in a way so that it would signify the dawning of the era of messianic salvation, the fulfillment of the plan of God. Today, he says, as opposed to all of the other days that have come before, today is a new day, the dawning of a new era of salvation and fulfillment of the plan of God. Today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, we can say that this incarnation, the taking on of flesh and humanity by the Son of God, the incarnation marks the beginning of the climax of history. What do I mean by that? One of the most important parts of the birth of Jesus is that he was born where? In Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary, they were not in Bethlehem. They were in Galilee, in Nazareth. They weren't planning on giving birth to their child in Bethlehem. They were planning to give birth in Galilee, in a little town called Nazareth. And so what happens? Well, we read that Joseph and Mary end up traveling to Bethlehem because of a coincidence. Caesar Augustus has issued a decree that everyone should be registered in their hometown in order to take a census. And of course, I say coincidentally, tongue-in-cheek, for I do not believe in, and the Bible does not teach coincidence, but rather it teaches the providential working of all things under the sovereign hand of God. So when we see that this huge coincidence that leads Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, we should not say, wow, look at that. What a lucky break. Prophecies fulfilled. No, we must say that God had planned it and willed it so. But again, why is Bethlehem so important? Because if you're familiar with the Christmas story, you'll probably know that Bethlehem was prophesied to be the birthplace of the Messiah. It says so in Micah chapter 5. would have been well familiar to those who are awaiting this Messiah. There it says, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. So the fact that Mary and Joseph ended up in Bethlehem is vital to the story of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, who is prophesied to come from Bethlehem. What this little detail does is clues us in to that these little events that happen throughout history and everything that surrounds the birth of Jesus is really, by God's perfect will and design, a combination of a whole lot of other little events and details that span throughout history since before the beginning of time. That's why genealogy, like that in the first chapter of the book of Matthew, is so important and that we shouldn't skip over in our Bible reading plan. Yes, it may be hard for us to pronounce some of the names or it may be a bit, a bit boring for us to care about the genealogy. What it represents, though, is the steady and the progressive, and the sovereign work of God leading up to the point. He's guiding history throughout generations to the birth of Jesus. In other words, the incarnation, this moment when Jesus becomes man, is the climax of the story of history. God's plan from before time. Let me explain what I mean. 
what we learn about God from the Bible is that history, which is the story of time, is the unfolding narrative of God's plan and purposes. It's His design. That's what history is. Every event in history plays a part in this grand story according to God's purpose. And it moves the plot along to its ultimate conclusion, every event in history does. This is the story of redemption. And like every good story, which has a beginning, middle, and end, it has conflict, it has a climax, it has resolution, so too does God's story begins in eternity past, there in the council of the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And it begins there It makes its way to Jesus' birth some 2,000 odd years ago. The Trinity proposes to carry out this plot, or what some theologians have called this covenant of redemption. And because of this plan of God from eternity past, we begin to see the thread of that story woven throughout the narrative of the Bible, beginning, of course, all the way in the book of Genesis to which I would turn your attention to Jake's eight-part series in Genesis over this past year. Remember, in the garden, after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin, God promises the climax of the story long before it ever happens. He says in Genesis 3.15 that all that had just gone wrong in the world would be made right. The seed of the serpent would be crushed by the heel of the seed of the woman. This is the first promise of the gospel. And here in the birth of Jesus, it becomes a reality. Testifying to the fact that the narrative will continue to unfold from Genesis onward. So the Old Testament then, which is the bigger and first part of your Bible, it is the specific story of how God's people, the Jews or the Israelites, carried out this story. Sometimes faithfully, sometimes not so faithfully through their wanderings and their captivities, through their conquests. The Old Testament is the account of God's people waiting for the coming of the promised Messiah. And even outside of his dealings with Israel, God would still be at work in the world through other nations and other rulers and other events, all to bring about the fulfillment of the promise that he made to Adam and Eve in the garden, to bring about the reality of that covenant he made with himself. For redemption. When Israel was in captivity and assumed that God had abandoned them, he was yet bringing about the global circumstances that would lead to the birth of Christ. Here's the point I'm making, that history serves the Christmas event. You see what I'm saying? History is leading to this point in history. All the things that have happened before the birth of Christ were leading to that very moment where it would take place. And everything that would happen afterwards would be marked by and work as a result of that moment in history. Or we can say it differently. History's job was to get the world to a little stable in Bethlehem. And so the incarnation, again, God's taking on and robing himself with human flesh, literally becoming a character in his own story. The incarnation marked the beginning of the climax of everything ever in history. It's a bold statement. But Jesus' life, death, and resurrection would constitute everything that God desired to accomplish in the world from the moment he created it, and even before. So that through Jesus, the effects of sin wrought from the fall of man in Genesis 3 would all be reversed. And it's clear enough to understand that when we see the meaning behind Jesus' own name, Jesus, or Yeshua. This means literally, God saves. And this is why Matthew tells us that he was named Jesus, because he says he will save his people from their sins. So God's promise to deliver a Savior, to crush the serpent's head, was fulfilled right there in the manger in the birth of Jesus. And the proclamation or the announcement of the angel is simply, 
He's here. He's come. Everything that this world and history has been leading up to, it's happening right now. Yeah, it's understated. But for those who have an eye with an expectant heart to God's purposes and promises fulfilled, it is the greatest news they could receive. Jesus is here. It is the Savior, Christ, Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord. That's just one part of the message, that He is here. And the great news of what it means, the second aspect of their message is that peace has come. See, with the advent of Christ, we're confronted with all the blessings that accompany it. The blessings begin to flow, and we're comforted by these blessings that flow from it. We see with it comes the absence of fear, the arrival of great joy, and of course the assurance and presence of peace. And this is what makes it good news. The angel says, fear not, in verse 10, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I am evangelizing you with joy that will be for all the people. There is great joy. Peace has come. Again, the angels of the multitude that come around and praise, sing God in verse 14, sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. This is good news. For with the advent of Christ comes the fulfillment of all of history, its longing and its purposes. And with this fulfillment comes great joy and peace. Two points to make about this. First is that Jesus' incarnation is a dismissal of fear. Jesus' incarnation is a dismissal of fear. Jake mentioned when he was talking about Zechariah that the angel had to calm the fears of Zechariah when he startled him in the temple. And so too Mary needed to be settled by the angels fear not when she was visited by Gabriel. And here again we see the angels themselves were afraid when the angel, possibly Gabriel again, shone around them. Fear not, the angel says. What we see here is that in each instance there is an initial reaction of fear and trembling at the appearance of these angels. And of course this may certainly have something to do with the terror and the shock that would come from a startling scene, knowing full well that angels, if not messengers, are warriors. I think there is still something else that God intends for us to see in how the angels stills the listeners' troubles. In fact, I think we should see and understand that their exhortation to not be afraid is actually part of the good news that these angelic messengers have come to proclaim. The immediate implication of the good news that they preach is that they should not be afraid, not merely of them, but of all the fear that haunts them. Remember that the message they proclaim, the substance of that message, is the advent of Christ. He is here. It is the very unfolding of God's redemptive plan in the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. It is the good news, the very gospel of Jesus Christ. And if with the announcement of God's redemptive working among them, through the birth of this child, they also charge their listeners to not fear, what should we then understand all of that to mean? It should be this, that the message of the angels declaring the advent of Christ is that there is freedom from fear. The message of the angels declaring the advent or the birth of Christ is that there is freedom from fear. Or in other words, fear is now incompatible with the gospel. See, the reality of the good news that these angels have come to declare means that there is no longer a place for fear in the heart of those who would come to hear and believe such good news. This good news drives out the fear. Whatever fear that is controlling the hearts of God's people, the birth of Christ will free us from it. Again, this is amazing news. But it may be foreign to you to consider yourself fearful or to be in such a desperate need of freedom from your fear that Christ would come and die in order to make it happen. But that is exactly what the Bible teaches. That is true. Consider the words of 
the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4. There, the Apostle writes that we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And by this, love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because he is also able. He is as also are we in this world. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What's John getting at? Well, here in the passage, we see that fear isn't the instinct that makes our our breath shallow or the heart race or the hair on our neck stand up when we're scared. I think more fundamentally and more biblically, fear is contrasted, we read, with confidence. Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, he says. In other words, what he says there in verse 17 and positively what he says in verse 18 negatively is what we have already said. Fear is incompatible with the gospel. If we abide in Christ and he abides in us, it is demonstrated in our abiding in him and he in us perfect love. And where there is perfect love, there can be no fear because perfect love casts out fear. And if there is fear, there has been not perfection in love. That's the argument John makes. So John teaches that in Christ, God drives out the fear of judgment by freeing us from judgment himself. And the result of this freedom is confidence. And so friends, let me tie this together for you. If you you are here this morning and you can admit that you have a need of the gospel, then you must also, also admit your need of freedom from the fear that the gospel drives out because it is the work of the gospel to drive out fear and replace it with abiding love. That's what the gospel does. There is no room in the gospel for fear because perfect love casts out fear. What does this look like in our lives? What are the fears that we contend with that we need to remind ourselves that the gospel answers and drives out? How do we take to heart the very warning and exhortation of the angels to not fear or be afraid because of the good news of Jesus? We consider Hebrews chapter 2. There the author writes, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise, God, Christ, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death So the first fear which we are freed from is the fear of death. This is what it means that Jesus partakes of the same things. In his incarnation, he brings on humanity to himself. And through his own death, he destroys the one who has the power of death. He says that is the devil. And he delivers all those through fear of death who are subject to lifelong slavery. Our fear of death the controlling and the dominating lack of confidence for the day of judgment is the perfect foothold the enemy uses to keep us from God. Do you understand the the language here? That the enemy cannot control you, but can only manipulate you with fear, namely the fear of death. And to be fair, he has truth on his side. Sinners should be in fear of judgment of a holy and just God. We are condemned by our sin before him. But because Jesus' death, conquering over death and destroying the one who has the power of death and who had submitted us to slavery through the fear of death, all of that has been put to shame. We then have no fear of death ourselves. The enemy has no control. In fact, when we sin and when we put ourselves in submission to his temptations, we simply fear that which we have been freed from in the first place. We return, the Proverbs would say, like a dog to its vomit. But Christ destroys death and frees us from the fear of death 
through his own death. We can walk through the valley of the shadow of death because there was one who guides us himself because he has been there before. And therefore, death and subsequently the fear of death and judgment and condemnation can no longer be used against us by the enemy. 1 Corinthians tells us that death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Rather, we should understand that the coming of Christ means that He, instead of condemning us in our fear of death, frees us from death and the fear of death because He becomes our life. Christ, by enduring death on the cross, becomes our life. It says in Colossians chapter 3, For you have died, Christian, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. So Christian, know that Christ is your life and you have been freed from the fear of death and this is possible because he has come. And peace has come. Of course, the fear of death may not always be seen or expressed in the troubled thoughts of what happens to us when we die. It's not as if we're constantly having existential crises about the afterlife. Rather, we see the fear of death expressed in our attempt to control our lives in the present maybe with indifference or even contempt for what comes next. I think that's more common than an obsession with what may be. For instance, our, our drive for comfort and security, for acceptance, significance, and so much more, they may actually just be our fear of God's judgment controlling us, disguised as God's blessings in our lives. If the worst fear the fear of death has been taken away through the death of Christ, then surely God does not want us to fear the lesser things in life. So we're freed from the fear of death, but we're also freed from the fear of failure. And the gospel reminds us that He is our righteousness. Our sin offends, of course, a holy and righteous God. It disrupts our fellowship with God and with each other. But through our justification... Through our salvation, through our adoption, Christ makes our fellowship with God permanent. Our failures do not end up keeping us from the Father. And so it says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And what kind of failures burden us with fears? Well, failures as a parent, failures as a spouse, failures as a friend as a brother or a sister, failure as a covenant member in Christ, failure as a neighbor. There are countless failures in our life and sometimes we are burdened with fear that our failures will keep us from Christ. And while the righteousness of Christ and the gospel does not make us no longer failures, it doesn't make us perfect by any means, it does ensure that these failures will never be an obstacle to God's love for us, that we indeed would have peace. Romans 8, verse 35 and 37 say that who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? No, for in all these things we are more than conquerors who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There are many fears we can get into. I don't have time. Consider the fear of rejection. Remind ourselves that Christ is our mediator. The fear of isolation and remind ourselves that Christ is our brother. Even the fear of bondage to sin, that we may never come out on the other side of that which has held us captive. Our most deepest temptations and fears have held us bondage to sin. We must remind ourselves that in the coming of Christ we are freed from such fear because he becomes our freedom. Perhaps the fear that most influences our lives is the fear that we will never be able to see past our current struggle. That sin that we wrestle with will always be there and we will always have anger. We will always have temptation. We will always be this way. We will never conquer. Things just simply won't get better and that we will battle with the same sin and temptation and discouragement forever. And maybe it's just our cross to bear. And as much as we know God's promises to grow in us and sanctify us, it's still incredibly difficult to see when or how 
that we will ever get better. And so we must ask ourselves, how does the advent of Christ move us from fear to freedom? The answer, of course, is not surprising, but it's important. The answer, of course, is the gospel. John 8, 336. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Freedom from the fear of bondage to temptation and sin and discouragement, it's only found in Christ. He is our true freedom. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus' incarnation disperses fear, but it also is a deliverance of great peace. The angel says, fear not, but it also says, peace on earth for those with whom he is well pleased. So what replaces this controlling effect of fear once it's been driven out by the gospel? How do we begin to act in faith that Christ is our freedom and that in Christ we have true freedom from the bondage of fear and temptation and slavery? How do we live freely in Christ? We are to live, it says, with peace. Again, the apostle in verse 14, verse 27 says, Peace, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives you, do I give you peace. For let your hearts not be troubled, and neither let them be afraid. So what takes the place of fear in the life of a disciple of Jesus? It is not fear, it is peace. Peace on earth among those with whom God is well pleased. And with peace that surpasses all understanding, with peace that we have because of our justification, as Romans chapter 5 says, since therefore we have been justified with faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We also have joy and joy in abundance. And so we are able to live in confidence. And our confidence then is the abiding of God in us and we in Him, in Christ Jesus. It is the dwelling of God in His people and the abiding of His people with God. That is what the Word of God who takes on flesh and dwells among His people has come to do. As the hymn would say, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Or hark the herald angels sing, glory be the newborn king. Well, the simple message of the angels is that he has come, peace has come, praise the Lord. And so Jesus' incarnation is a demonstration of the glory of God for which we must praise and rejoice. We must join in the choir of the angels there around the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. But what's interesting here is the whole backdrop of the incarnation, the whole backdrop of this story is its lowliness. It's the irony that the king of glory and of majesty would stoop to receive and assume humanity to himself would be wrapped in bits of cloth and placed to rest in a feeding trough meant for animals. But this is the event that is heralded by the angels as good news of great joy. This is what causes the shepherds to go and see this child. This is what causes them to praise and rejoice and to declare with the angels glory to God in the highest. This is what causes Mary to store up and ponder, contemplate all in her heart in awe and amazement of what God is doing. It's the lowliness. Mary herself would say that he had saw or had regard for the lowly estate of his servant. How is this true? Because he himself serves us. He, Philippians tells us, takes on the form of a servant. The whole incarnation is contrasted with its lowliness despite the fact that Jesus is the creator of the universe. And God is to be glorified not just in the lowliness of Christ's birth but also in his death, the humility of his death. And even beyond that, the great and the powerful work of his resurrection. This is how God chooses to glorify himself in the world through the humility, the condescension, the lowliness, 
not only of Christ, but of his people, being elevated and exalted above that which seeks to harm them. He uses the lowly and makes them high. He uses, as it's been said, crooked sticks to make straight lines. He uses the fool to shame the wise and the weak to shame the strong. And so I just want you to think that this leads us to praise the glory of God which shows around for which the angels sing and Mary sings and the shepherds join in and all the choir of heaven even now sings, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. If all of this is true, if the birth of Jesus is the Son of God is true, then only the highest praise is fitting. Only the highest praise to God. Not your half-hearted praise, not your sleepy-eyed singing, but your full-hearted, full-throated exaltation of Christ as the Son of God, incarnate word has taken on flesh. Now listen, you and I know that we are sinners, we are fickle, and sometimes we don't praise with all heart and full gusto. But isn't it right to remind ourselves when we gather that we must, with full hearts, praise God? That's what the incarnation is meant to do. The angel's message is that he is here, Jesus the fulfillment of all of God's work and all of history and the plan of redemption even before there was a history is here. And peace has come because of his coming. And therefore we must praise the Lord. All of this leads us to perhaps the most astonishing part of this account. And that's who actually receives the message. Who the good news is for. He doesn't announce it for announcement's sake. It's not for the angels. They are the one tasked with announcing the good news. It is for, in verse 10, all the people. Or in verse 14, all those in whom God is well pleased. Or in other words, the good news of the advent of Jesus, the coming of the fulfillment of God's promises, the blessings of peace and joy, and the incarnation's work of bringing us in reconciled praise to God, all of those are for those who are the objects of His good pleasure. It is for the lowly, like Mary, like the shepherds, like sinners. In fact, even Jesus' own resurrection would first be discovered and made known to women. Shepherds, the lower class of society, gets the privilege of joining in the very first choir that sings praises to the incarnate King. The good news is for all those who understand correctly that before God, our estate as sinners is to be pitied. And yet it was to them, the message comes, not because they knew that they could clean themselves up and impress God, not because they would become really great evangelists, not because they would become impressive by the rest of the world's standard. It is precisely because they were unimpressive that God chooses It is God's good delight and pleasure that he makes known because he wants to show the world exactly how he operates. And therefore, friends, the only criteria for receiving and experiencing the blessing and the joys of Christmas is not to be found within ourselves, not in our nationality or ethnicity. It's not in our intellect. It's not in what we can do with our hands. It's not in the amount of sinning that we've done and repented of or the amount of repentance we've done and good works that we've had. And probably should repent of. You know, the only criteria for receiving and experiencing the blessings of the joy of Christmas is found in the sovereign pleasures of God. The joy of Christmas begs us to come empty-handed, like the shepherds, expectantly waiting, rejoicing that they have brought nothing to God, but God has brought everything, even Himself, to them. We can sing with the hymn. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, and helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Friends, for Christmas, next week, this week, remember the message, the simple message of the angels, that he is here, that peace has come, and we must praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the good news of great joy. There is much still to be said. Too much to fit into a
a sermon, too much to fit into a series, too much to even consider with the full faculty of our minds. And yet we dedicate ourselves week after week to acknowledge that we are in great debt to you. Not that we can or ever should attempt to repay God, but acknowledging our debt of gratitude and service because of what you have done on our behalf by sending Christ, your Son, to take on flesh. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, the incarnate Word of God. We thank you, God, for the purposes that have been fulfilled in his death, in his birth and in his death, for the peace that flows from those who have been justified by faith, for the joy that we can live in and the freedom from such fear because of his work. And so we rejoice and sing and join the choir of angels who sing glory to God in the highest. In excelsis Deo, you are worthy because it is true. As always, we love and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.